Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hi everyone, welcome back to the 29th floor here in central Hong Kong. Glad you could join me here today as we study the reading assignments for June 10th through 16, covering Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. And the title is Not As I Will, But As Thou Wilt. Today we'll be uh, covering the end of the Last Supper and then the journey that Christ took with his disciples into Gethsemane, uh, the atonement itself, the great act in which the Savior uh, bled for every, from every poor uh, on our behalf, uh, and then the beginning of his trial uh, before the Jewish leaders. I hope you enjoy today's lesson, and if you do, please uh, consider giving me a a thumbs up uh, on YouTube, as well as uh, subscribe. I'd appreciate the support. All right, let's dive into the lesson material today, because we have quite a bit to cover. Uh, We we start in in, in Matthew, uh, in Matthew 26, where Christ prophesies that he would be betrayed and that he would be crucified. Um, And with that, uh, all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, mentioned that the religious leaders of the day were conspiring as to how they might kill Jesus. Matthew and Mark uh, emphasized that they wanted to do it subtly or by craft. This was not something that they wanted to do publicly because Christ had become a very public figure. And uh, they were afraid that killing Jesus, uh, that, that executing him, would result and an uproar among the people. And uh, Matthew and Mark say that the reason that they were afraid of the people is because they didn't want to kill anyone on a feast day. They were afraid that that would look bad in the eyes of the people if they were to, if they were to kill someone on, on a holy day, on a day of great importance, which is the feast of the Passover, uh, one of the most important holidays uh, for the Jewish people. Um, Luke is a little more uh, forthright in their intentions, though. He seems to indicate uh, that the reason that they were afraid of Christ is because of the influence that he had over the people. Uh, So it's obvious that the Jewish leaders wanted him out of the picture. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of his influence, and they wanted to get rid of him. Um, Although, again, Luke is... A little more clear that the reason they wanted to do this was because they were afraid of this, his great influence and that his influence was going to detract from their influence and from their ability uh, to lead the people uh, either charitably in the ways that they believe they should be led or not so charitably. Uh, it was going to take away from their power and their ability to, to control the people. Uh, from there in the three uh, synoptic accounts, we go to the house of one uh, Simon the leper. Um, and while there, <clears throat> Matthew and Mark mention that an unnamed woman anoints his head with a very precious oil called spikenard. It was a very fragrant oil, and because of its, its strong and 
uh, a pleasing fragrance. It, it was very, very valuable. Now, you may recall that we already discussed this uh, in John chapter 12. Um, and so John puts this at the beginning of uh, the Savior's last week, whereas the uh, Synoptic Gospels put it <clears throat> right before the Last Supper. So again, you see there's, there's some, some disconnect uh, between the accounts between the Synoptic Gospels on the one hand and, and John on the other. And again, this is not, uh, this is not an indictment of the, <clears throat> of the veracity of the accounts, of their truthfulness, but rather this, in my mind, shows the authenticity that you have actual people uh, that were there, and, and even though they, they agree on the big important things, they're a little bit different on some of the details and how, how that happened. Um, and in my mind, it shows it shows authenticity. <clears throat> anyway, the John account tells us uh, that the woman that anoints Christ's head, even though Matthew and Mark uh, do not mention who it is, <clears throat> John tells us that it was Mary. Mary, who's she is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus, and she anoints his feet and wipes them with her hair. So, again. The, the Matthew and the Mark account, it's an unnamed woman, and she anoints his head. Uh, and, and they mention that it's the home of Simon the leper. Um, clearly, this man is no longer a leper. It's possible this was someone who the Savior had healed. And so because of this, he was a great, uh, he was a follower, a devotee of the Savior. Uh, we don't really know anything else about him. But we know that it was his house, an unnamed woman, according to Matthew and Mark, anoints his head with spikenard. Whereas John tells us that it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and she anoints his feet and then wipes them with her hair. And it's interesting to note that, <clears throat> that John is the only one that mentions the, the washing of the feet, the anointing of the feet that she performed. And if you recall, last week we, we discussed uh, that it was in the account of John that we have the record of the Savior washing the disciples' feet. And so, uh, John and John is the only gospel that mentioned that, mentions this. I, I do stand corrected. I said last week that John was the only of the apostles for which we have a gospel. Uh, that that's not true. Uh, I was corrected last week online. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Matthew also was uh, one of the disciples, but Matthew did not mention the washing of the feet. John is the only one that mentions both the washing of the apostles' feet, as we covered last week. And then earlier, uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Uh, so interesting that, that John seems to be very interested in, in, in the significance of washing and cleansing feet uh, in the Savior's life. Uh, whereas, again, the Matthew and the Mark account only mention the anointing um, of, of his head. Now, again, this is, this is a, a, a sign of deep respect and deep love that, that Mary is performing here. And to anoint someone's head with this expensive ointment is, is a sign of deep love. Uh, to, to wash someone's, to anoint someone's feet with it is a sign of great admiration. And again, this isn't just washing feet with water, this is taking very expensive ointment and washing someone's feet with them. Uh, tr a true sign of, of, great, of great devotion. <clears throat> Um, and there's protest from the from the disciples. <clears throat> uh, John 
is explicit in saying it was Judas is the one that was protesting. Mark says it was some of the disciples, whereas Matthew said it was just generally the disciples. So, so again, the John account here is very explicit and only in saying that it was Mary and that it was Judas, uh, specifically calling people out by names. And the reason they're <coughs> complaining is because they're saying, why are we using this expensive ointment to wash someone's head or to wash their feet, according to the John account? Um, and and it's, according to John, it's Judas who says, why didn't we just take this and, and sell it, and then we could take the money uh, that we get from the sale, and we could give it to the poor? <clears throat> well, John is very clear and calls him out and says he's not interested in the poor, but he only says this because he's a thief, and he was controlling the purse. Um, so clearly, John does not have good feelings towards, uh, towards Judas, and it's coming out here as he calls him, calls him to task for his for his great hypocrisy uh and then in the going to the mark account as uh, whether it's the save whether it's uh, judas that's complaining or even more of the disciples that's complaining the savior's response uh, is instructive he says and jesus said let her alone i'm in mark uh, 14 verse 6 and jesus said let her alone why trouble ye her she hath wrought a good work on me for ye have the poor with you always and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. So several things to note here. Uh, this idea that the, you know, the idea that now uh, the, he calls out the great hypocrisy of those that are complaining. He says, you have the poor with you always, and then all of a sudden she's doing this great work, and now you're concerned about the poor? It's like, you should always be concerned about the poor. But at the same time, there's certain instances when it's appropriate uh, to use our resources not only to, to benefit the poor. Of course we should be using the advantages and the blessings that the Lord has given us to bless those that are less fortunate than us. Of course we should be doing that, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But there's other times when we should be using our resources, when we should be using those things that the Lord has blessed us with, when we should be sacrificing in order to simply to show the Lord that we love him. You know, you think of the accounts of the, the early saints as they uh, <clears throat> gave up and sacrificed their, their fine china so that it could be put in the walls of the Kirtland Temple. Uh, you know, a beautiful building that was so precious and so sacred to them. And it was later destroyed by fire in a tornado and was used as a barn. But nonetheless, they did that because they showed the Lord that they love him. It uh, reminds me of a, of, a, uh, of a quote, of a story that Elder Bednar told uh, from a talk that he gave at BYU called Quick to Observe. <clears throat> he says, I have a dear friend who served as a stake president the patriarch and the stake over which he presided had experienced some health challenges and was unable to perform in his calling. The ailing patriarch had difficulty moving about and dressing and caring for himself, and his strength was limited. One Sabbath afternoon, this good stake president visited the home of the patriarch to encourage him and check on his well-being. As the stake president entered the home, he found the patriarch dressed in his suit and white shirt and tie, sitting in a recliner in the front room. The stake president greeted the dear patriarch, and knowing how hard it must have been to dress himself, 
graciously suggested to the patriarch that it was not necessary for him to get dressed up on the Sabbath or to meet visitors. In a kind but firm voice, the patriarch reproved the state president and said, Don't you know that this is the only way I have left to show the Lord how much I love him? I think a beautiful example here by this by this patriarch that he was willing to sacrifice to show the Lord that he loved him. I think it's worth each of us asking ourselves what sacrifices do we make to show the Lord that we love him? Again, of course we should be sacrificing and giving of what we have to support the poor as Judas and the other disciples pointed out here. But many times it's appropriate to make sacrifices simply to show God how much we love him. So I think it's worth each of us asking, what sacrifices, what are we willing to give up simply to convey to the Lord and to remind ourselves how much we love the Lord? So a beautiful example, beautiful lesson here taught by the Savior and by Mary as she anointed the Savior um, prior to his death. And then again in verse 8, this idea that she is coming aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. It's, in some ways, it's actually kind of ridiculous what she's doing. You don't, he, Christ was perfectly healthy at this time. Um, and other than a few, uh, a few statements that he had said, there was no indication that he would be, be, be gone within a week. But yet either uh, compelled by the Spirit or sensitive to the things that he had taught, Mary anoints the Savior in the same way that you would anoint or prepare a body that had just died. She anoints him prior to his burying. Well, shortly after this, Judas then uh, leaves. Um, and at some point, uh, he, he goes to the leaders, uh, the religious leaders of the time, and uh, betrays Christ. And we know that he does it for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's important to note uh, that the, the religious leaders of the time, did they really need Judas's help? I'm not sure. We'll see how Judas was able to lead them to the place where the Savior uh, took his disciples uh, when they arrested him uh, on the Mount of Olives. But it's uh, no doubt they could have found other ways to get rid of him. Um, so did they need his help? And in my mind, I think it's questionable whether or not they needed his help. But what Judas does in betraying the Savior for 30 pieces of silver is he does the exact opposite of what we just talked about. And I think that's why they mention Judas betraying Christ right after the, the story of Mary anointing Christ. Mary gave up something valuable and something precious to show God how much she loved him. Whereas Judas, on the other hand, for 30 pathetic pieces of silver, showed Christ how little he thought of him. So we have these two very contrasting notions of valuing God and indicating to God how much we love him. Mary showing how much she was willing to give up for God, and Judas showing how little he thought of his Savior uh, should cause us to each reflect about, about our actions and what do we give up in order to show God either that we love him or perhaps we don't 
we give things up to show God that we don't think very much of him. When we have the choice, when we have choices in front of us, do we choose to show God that we love him? Or do we do our actions show God that maybe we don't think so very much of him? Uh, interesting and contrasting lessons taught by Mary on one hand and by Judas on the other. <clears throat> the accounts then take us to uh, directly to the Last Supper. Now, it's important to recall that uh, they were expecting to enjoy a feast together uh, as this, this small band of followers of the Savior. Uh, they were expecting to partake of the Passover feast uh, together as a group. And the Passover feast had been something they had been doing every year for uh, every year of their lives. So they were very familiar with the traditions and with the pageantry and with the processes that went into this meal. And they were expecting it to be a normal Passover, a normal, a normal celebration that they'd done every year of their lives, a celebration of the Jews, the Jewish people being delivered from Egypt, being led out by the hand of God and the spirit of death passing over them, finally convincing Pharaoh to let his people, to let the Jewish people go in purchasing their freedom um, with, uh, with the sacrifice. So that's what they were expecting, but what they got was much more. Now, it starts off with the account of the Savior miraculously uh, providing for the room, um, and then Christ, as the host, begins the evening with a toast of thanksgiving, uh, as was the custom. And then at some point, as the dinner progresses, Christ prophesies, and all twelve of them are at this point gathered together, Christ prophesies that one of them will betray him. <clears throat> he uh, doesn't say who it is, um, but it's interesting to note that uh, as they, as the Savior gives this prophecy, um, I, I love the observation that uh, Elder Uchtdorf made uh, in his t <clears throat> October 2014 talk titled, Lord Is It I? He states, It was our beloved Savior's final night in mortality, the evening before he would offer himself a ransom for all mankind. As he broke bread with his disciples, he said something that must have filled their hearts with great alarm and deep sadness. One of you shall betray me, he told them. The disciples didn't question the truth of what he said, nor did they look around, point to someone else, and ask, Is it him? Instead, they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? I wonder what each of us would do if we were asked that question by the Savior. <clears throat> would we look at those around us and say in our hearts, He's probably talking about Brother Johnson. I've always wondered about him. Or... I'm glad Brother Brown is here. He really needs to hear this message. Or would we, like those disciples of old, look inward and ask the penetrating, the penetrating question, is it I? So, beautiful observation by uh, Elder Uchtdorf, that, uh, one that we should follow. Um, as we hear a message that is powerful uh, and a call to repentance, certainly is what the Savior was asking each of them to do, is reflect upon their own devotion to him and their own value that they ascribed to him and whether or not they would be willing to betray him. They didn't look around the table pointing at each other assuming that it must have been someone else. They turned inwardly and asked, Is it I? 
do I love the Lord enough that I would never betray him? A very powerful lesson there. Then at another point in the meal, the Lord introduces the sacrament. And this was a major departure uh, from from the normal Passover uh, proceedings. Um, He introduces the sacrament, and it's very similar to the way that, that we do the sacrament. He takes simple bread. You know, he who had previously described himself as being the bread of life, who had miraculously fed multitudes with just a few loaves of bread. Of bread, He takes the bread and he breaks it and gives it to them and tells them to eat it in remembrance of his body. And then he gives them wine. Uh, the same Savior who had miraculously uh, provided wine at a wedding feast, he gives them wine and tells them to drink and, reduce, and do so in remembrance uh, of his blood that he would shed for them. And it's important for each of us as we study this, as we study the first sacrament, to remember the sacrament that we partake of every week, that we enjoy every week. And I think, you know, I, I know for myself, I, as I sit on, sit in the pew with my uh, four children, uh, usually it's my two younger one on either side of me, they're drawing or in some other way trying to distract me, sitting on my lap or another way, uh, showing affection. Uh, not by any means to tell to, to say that what they're doing is not good, because uh, I love them with all my heart, and I want to, I want, I love being there with them and enjoying that special time with them. But at the same time, how often uh, do we, during the sacrament, really stop to think about what it is we're doing? How often do we stop and really listen to the words of the sacramental prayer? And think about what they really mean. You know, during the sacramental prayer, as we renew our baptismal covenants, we promise to do three things. And the Lord's promise, if we do those three things, is that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. I think it's worth quickly reviewing the things that we promise to do uh, in the context of of what we've been talking about last week and what we will talk about uh, during the rest of this lesson. First is that we are willing to take upon us the name of Christ. Just as a bride takes upon herself the name of her husband, and as we talked about last week, Christ is the bridegroom. The church represents the bride. And we are to come together as one, as a body of Christ. And as we unite with each other, as we unite with that body, as as we unite with the bride, we, in effect, enter into covenants with Christ, who is the bridegroom. And we take upon ourselves his name by becoming part of his church. And of course, during, this sac- during our baptism, we don't actually take upon ourselves his name, but we express a willingness to do so. And it is not until we go to the temple and receive our endowments that we literally take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Next is that we are willing to always remember him. 
And in this mind, and in my mind, this leads directly to what we just talked about with Mary and her sacrifice, and what she was willing to give up to show the Lord that she loved Him, and that she was willing to always remember Him by the things she was willing to give up, by the sacrifices that she was willing to make. And then the third thing we covenant that we will do after we covenant that we're willing to take upon us the name of Christ and that we will always remember him is we covenant to keep his commandments. And we read last week in John fourteen fifteen that if we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. And then the promise that the Lord gives us, if we do those three things in return, he promises us that we may always have his spirit to be with us, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. And in his discourse that we covered last week and the chapters in John, we talked about how Christ promised his disciples that he would send the Comforter, that he would send the Holy Ghost to be with them, and that he would testify of Christ and lead them to all truth. And we talked about how it was the Holy Ghost that leads us to Christ. And as we come unto Christ through the Holy Ghost, because Christ is one with the Father, we be also become one with the Father as we become one with Christ. And it's the Holy Ghost that leads us to become one with Christ. So the sacrament, which is an ordinance in which we renew our baptismal covenants, tells us the steps that we have to take to come unto Christ by receiving the Holy Ghost. And it is only through coming to Christ that we can be led back to the Father by Christ, becoming one with all three of those sacred and holy individuals, with all one with all three members of the Godhead. So the ordinance of the sacrament, which the Lord instituted during this Last Supper, uh, is deeply powerful and in many ways ties together uh, what we've been talking about the past two weeks and what the Savior uh, has discoursed upon uh, during the Last Supper. So it beautifully ties all those ideas together. Well, as they finish this uh, very unique Passover meal, uh, they finish with a hymn, and then they head to a place known as Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And for more details as to the significance uh, of this place, um, of, uh, the, of olives themselves, of, of the fruit and the oil that comes from them, and of the olive tree and its meaning and in Jewish culture uh, and its significance to us, I, I would refer you to uh, a talk by uh, Truman Madsen called The Olive Press. You can find it a, a, a portion of it in the de, uh, December 1982 Enzyme. You can find the full address uh, it's readily available online. But in there, uh, Brother Madsen goes into great detail as to the significance of olive trees and olive oil and olives themselves, both in, uh, in Jewish culture and in their society at the time, as well as in uh, the Jewish religion and what the olive uh, tree and the olive oil uh, stood for and what it symbolizes. And it has great importance to us as, as Latter-day Saints, as Christians in this day, in helping us better understand Christ and his 
importance to us. And as they are walking, uh, Christ prophesied that they would all be offended because of him that very night. And then Peter famously says that he, of course, would, would never do such a thing. And the Savior, in response, further prophesied that before the, before the cock crowed, that he would deny the Savior three times. And you can imagine um, what impact this must have had upon Peter. And we'll, later, uh, later in this lesson, we'll, we'll get to those denials that he gave. <clears throat> well, Christ enters the garden with his disciples. There's only 11 of them now as Judas has departed. He leaves eight of them behind and goes further with Peter, James, and John, his three lead disciples. Uh, it's interesting to note then that John is the only of the gospel of the gospel accounts that does not record Christ's suffering in the Garden of Eden. Or, sorry, I apologize. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's the only one that does not record this. But yet, at the same time, he was the only one that was actually there. He was closest, and he was the only one that was in position to actually. Uh, be, be a witness to it. John was also the only one that was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And his is the only gospel account that doesn't mention the Mount of Transfiguration. So, in my mind, probably the two most sacred experiences that the Savior uh, experienced in mortality, John was invited to partake and participate in both of them. And in both of them, it's the John account uh, that, that is absent of any record of them happening. And it's, it's my personal belief that those experiences were so sacred to John that he did not feel it was appropriate for him to record them. He did not feel it was his place to write them down. And he left that responsibility to, to others uh, who, who heard about it secondhand. Um, so interesting uh, insight, and as to as to John, um, and the and the sacred privileges that he had been party to, and and the manner in which he treated them, um, and his I think his silence on these uh, speaks volume about how important they are. Well, Christ takes those three, Peter, James, and John. He takes them further, and then he leaves them, and he goes further into the garden where he can be alone. And he kneels down and he prays. And we have, considering its great import, we have very little record about what actually happened. The greatest detail we have is found in Luke 22, verses 42 through 44. Starting in verse 41, actually. And he was withdrawn from them, meaning Peter, James, and John, about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed. So think how far a normal person can throw a stone, probably about 20 or 30 meters. And then once he's uh, that far apart from them, he kneels down and he prays, and he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke, a scientist, a physician by training, is the only one that mentions the great drops of blood falling to the ground as if it was sweat. We don't know the details as to what happened here, but it must have been truly agonizing what the Savior went through. Uh, Gethsemane itself um, means uh, the oil press. I want to quickly share a thought from um, from uh, Brother Madsen's article, the the uh, the olive press that we talked about, and uh, he he says the following: I'm talking about olive presses at the time to produce olive oil. The refined olives had to be crushed in a press. The mellowed and seasoned olives were placed in strong bags and flattened on a furrowed stone. Then a huge crushing circular rock was rolled around on top, paced by a mule or an ox and a stinging whip. Another method used heavy wooden levers or screws twisting beams downward like a winch upon the stone with the same effect. Pressure, 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 until the olive until the oil flowed. So picture these large circular rocks on which they place the olives, putting them in a bag and apply pressure until the oil flows out. You can think of the Savior being similar placed in that olive press, the Garden of Gethsemane, as the pressure of the sins of the world weighed him down until in the same way that the oil flowed out of the, out of the olives, the blood flowed out of his body due to the pressure, due to the weight that he took upon himself as our Savior and as our Redeemer. Elder Talmadge, in his incomparable book, uh, Jesus the Christ, stated the following. Christ's agony in the garden is unfathomable by the finite mind, both as to the intensity and cause. The thought that he suffered through fear of death is untenable. Death to him was preliminary to resurrection and triumphal return to this father from whom he had come, and to a state of glory even beyond that, even beyond what Uh, he had before possessed and moreover it was within his power to lay down his life voluntarily he struggled and groaned under a burden such as no other being who has lived on earth might even conceive as possible it was not physical pain nor mental anguish alone that caused him to suffer such torture as to produce an extrusion of blood from every pore but a spiritual agony of soul such as only god was capable of experiencing No other man, however great his power of physical or mental endurance, could have suffered so. For his human organism would have succumbed, and syncope would have produced unconsciousness and welcome oblivion. In that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors of Satan, the prince of this world, could afflict. 
here, Elder Talmadge tells us, uh, gives his testimony as to what it must have been like for the Savior. Elder McConkie, uh, in his beautiful last testimony <clears throat> that he gave at uh, General Conference in April 1985, titled the, power, the Purifying Power of Gethsemane, said the following, We do not know, we cannot tell. No mortal mind can conceive the full import of what Christ did in Gethsemane. We know he sweat great gouts of blood from every pore as he drained the dregs of that bitter cup his father had given him. We know he suffered, both body and spirit, more than it is possible for man to suffer, except it be unto death. We know that in some way incomprehensible to us, his suffering satisfied the demands of justice, ransomed penitent souls from the pains and penalties of sin, and made mercy available to those who believe in his holy name. We know that he lay prostrate upon the ground as the pains and agonies of an infinite burden caused him to tremble and would that he might not drink the bitter cup. Turning to the Book of Mormon, as we try to better understand as as much as possible what it must have been like for the Savior. And I would, of course, echo the the sentiment expressed by elders Talmadge and McConkie that it is simply impossible for our mortal and very, very finite minds to even begin to comprehend the atonement of Jesus Christ, this infinite atonement that makes salvation possible for billions of our Father in Heaven's children. We simply cannot comprehend it. We can try to understand the edges, and I think uh, some of the quotes that we'll be talking about here and some of the scriptures uh, and the scriptures that we'll be sharing, and really the main point of scriptures really is to help us try to understand the atonement. But we have to approach this task humbly, recognizing that it is simply not possible for us to understand completely or even really approach a complete understanding of this atonement and of the sacrifice that the Savior made for us. We turn now to Alma, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he might lose the bands of death, which bind his people. And he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels might be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, that he may know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people, according to their infirmities. This idea that he took upon himself flesh, the God of the universe came down and became one of us, and took upon himself pains and sufferings that we experience so that he can relate to us, that he can understand how we feel. Certainly those, that that experience of of understanding and comprehending everything that we go through as mortals reached its climax in Gethsemane. Two more quotes. 
<clears throat> Elder Maxwell, in an April 1990 talk titled Endure It Well, stated, One of the most powerful and searching questions ever asked of all of us and our sufferings hangs in time and space before us. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? Jesus plumbed the depths and scaled the heights in order to comprehend all things. Jesus, therefore, is not only a fully atoning, but he is also a fully comprehending Savior. And one final quote. And this one comes from uh, Sister uh, Chieko Okazaki in her book, uh, ironically titled Lighten Up. Um, but I think you'll agree with me, this is one of the heavier quotes uh, that you'll probably ever hear. But it helps us put in context and understand in a little bit, and is in our finite ways, what the Savior was experiencing in the garden. And she addresses it to sisters. <clears throat> she states, Well, my dear sisters, the gospel is the good news that can free us from guilt. We know that Jesus experienced the totality of mortal existence in Gethsemane. It's our faith that he experienced everything, absolutely everything. Sometimes we don't think through the implications of that belief. We talk in great gener generalities about the sins of all humankind, about the suffering of the entire human family, but we don't experience pain in generalities. We experience it individually. That means we know that means he knows what it felt like when your mother died of cancer, how it was for your mother, how it still is for you. He knows what it felt like to lose the student body election. He knows that moment when the brakes locked and the car started to skid. He experienced the slave ship sailing from Ghana towards Virginia. He experienced the gas chambers at Dachau. He experienced napalm in Vietnam. He knows about drug addiction and alcoholism. Let me go further. There is nothing you have experienced as a woman that he does not also know and recognize. On a profound level, he understands the hunger to hold your baby that sustains you through pregnancy. He understands both the physical pain of giving birth and the immense joy. He knows about PMS and cramps and menopause. He understands about rape and infertility and abortion. His last recorded words to his disciples were, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He understands your mother pain when your five-year-old leaves for kindergarten, <clears throat> when a bully picks on your fifth grader, when your daughter calls to say that the new baby has Down syndrome. He knows your mother rage when a trusted babysitter sexually abuses your two-year-old, when someone gives your 13-year-old drugs, when someone seduces your 17-year-old. He knows the pain you live with when you come home to a quiet apartment where the only children are visitors, when you hear that your former husband and his new wife were sealed in the temple last week when your 50th wedding anniversary rolls around and your husband has been dead for two years. He knows all that. He's been there. He's been lower than all that. 
He's not waiting for us to be perfect. Perfect people don't need a savior. He came to save his people in their imperfections. He is the Lord of the living, and the living make mistakes. He's not embarrassed by us, angry at us, or shocked. He wants us in our brokenness, in our unhappiness, in our guilt, and in our grief. We can't comprehend what the Savior went through in the garden. But it is because he endured the garden that he can comprehend us, that he can meet us where we are, that he can take us in our brokenness, reach out his hand and say to us, I know how you feel. I've been there. I've endured that. And I came through. And if you trust me, if you follow me, you too can come through. <clears throat> Can't understand the atonement, how it works. I don't know why Christ's bleeding in a garden 2,000 years ago makes it possible for me <clears throat> to be forgiven of my sins, of my shortcomings. Makes it possible for me and for you to overcome our weaknesses and our infirmities and eventually return and be united with our Father in Heaven. I don't get it. <laughs> but I know that it's true. that it happened. I know that if we come unto Christ, no matter what happens in this world, we will be okay. Because He has overcome the world. <clears throat> now this happened three times, according to the record. Now it is possible uh, that... Uh, the number three here is uh, for symbolic symbolic purposes. Maybe it was three, maybe it was more, maybe it was less, but we're told it was three times because the number three in Hebrew means for a divine purpose. And so as we study scriptures and we see that something has repeated itself X number of times or is taken in a specific uh, quantity number of years or period of time, uh, it's important to think what that number might be teaching us. And here... Uh, three times the Savior prayed, bled at every pore, went back and found his apostles, and they were asleep. And he tells them to wake up and to keep watch and to pray for him and to pray for themselves. And then he goes back and repeats three times. And clearly this was for a divine, the most divine purpose. <clears throat> And after this is completed three times, the mob comes. John tells us that when they say that they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and he says it is him, the mob falls backwards. And then they fall on the ground. Clearly, they cannot withstand the great glory of this incredible being. One of the disciples, John says that it's Peter, takes his sword and cuts off the right ear of one of the members of the mob. And then Luke tells us 
that the Savior healed that ear. And that interestingly, this is the Savior's final act of healing that we have record of. Christ, who descended below all things, understands what it's like to have your ear cut off. And he certainly understands the guilt of being part of an angry mob that comes and attacks a preacher from Galilee. And then to have that preacher miraculously heal your ear. One can only imagine the thoughts that must have been going through that through that individual's mind this great man that he came to attack he came to arrest and lead to his execution mercifully restored his ear Christ then after healing him says tells his disciples to put away their swords and reminds them that if he wanted to get out of this he could but he's not. He's doing this willingly. His disciples flee. He is taken to Caiaphas, who is the high priest. This trial, it's important to remember, is completely illegal under Jewish law. <clears throat> it's illegal for several reasons. First of all, it happens at night. Under Jewish law, they weren't allowed to hold these types of trials at night. And this is a trial, it's important to remember... It's not just a normal trial, but this is a capital trial, one that they hope and one that they are making every plan that they can will result in the Savior's demise. So a capital trial cannot happen at night, and it can only happen in an official courtroom of the Sanhedrin. But this was happening at the residence of Caiaphas. And then they question him without first charging him. Uh, which was also illegal. Now, they do try to follow the Jewish law where you need two witnesses, and they had a hard time finding witnesses, so they find two false witnesses. And what is their claim against the Savior? That he said he could, uh, he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, the Savior never said that. But that is what the two false witnesses claim, and that is what they need in order to, to convict him. Now, one would ask legitimately, what's wrong with saying you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? And interestingly, Christ never says anything when he's questioned about this. But the high priest continues to push, and as Christ testifies that he is Christ, finally they think they have something to condemn him for, the crime of blasphemy, which in the Jewish culture was the highest crime possible. Now consider for a moment the unbelievable agony and irony, if you will, of God, the Savior of the world, being accused of blasphemy. It uh, truly causes one to stop and think. The one being in the universe that could never be guilty of blasphemy was one of the few that were executed for it. Peter followed from afar. He wanted to keep his distance. And he was accused three times of being an associate of Christ. And each time 
he denied that. And on the third time, the, as soon as he said it, the cock crowed. And in one account, as soon as the cock crowed, the Savior looked in Peter's way. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, we should be generous, I think, towards Peter. Some have accused Peter of weakness uh, by his denials. Um, President Kimball uh, gave a talk called Peter, My Brother, in which he lists through some of the different possible reasons as to why it might have been that Peter did, in fact, deny the Savior three times. Well, it's possible he did it uh, simply because he lacked courage. That doesn't necessarily seem to uh, reconcile with the Peter that we that we know and that we love through the scriptures. It's this irrepressible Peter that, that jumps out of the boat as soon as he sees the Savior walking on water. It's the same Peter that when the Savior says, I need to wash your feet, says, all right, then wash my whole body. Peter was impulsive. And he didn't seem, he doesn't necessarily seem to be the type that would, uh, <clears throat> that would out of cowardice uh, deny the Savior. But it's certainly possible that he did. President Kemple men mentions a few other possible reasons. Um, it's possible that he was acting out of confusion or frustration um, thinking that the circumstances justified an outward denial, especially since the Lord had told him at, uh, when he was at Caesarea Philippi that he should tell no man that Jesus was the Christ. And then feeling, fe uh, feeling further frustration because Jesus had prohibited from trying to stop the crucifixion. Perhaps that's another reason. Perhaps it was be because he believed that it was advantageous to the cause for him to avoid being arrested so that he could provide, preside over the church after Christ's death. So we must be generous as we consider Peter and consider his actions that night. We don't know what was going on in his head. And we should, just as we should be generous with Peter, we should be generous with all within the church and all, especially our leaders, as we consider their actions. We don't know everything that they're thinking and we don't know all that they're going through. The only conclusion that the record tells us for sure is, is that after he denied Christ three times, Peter went out and wept bitterly, recognizing that what he did, and never again did he deny Christ. He went on from here to be one of the truly great leaders, sealing his testimony with his blood, according to true tradition, being willing to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die in the same way that the Savior did. <clears throat> now this covenant that we never deny Christ, this covenant that Peter took personally, and after this, his actions this night, one that he lived out, <clears throat> this is the same covenant that we agreed to when we were baptized. As stated in Messiah 18 verse 9, we, when we're baptized, we promise that we will stand as, a wit as witnesses of God at all times and all things and in all places. <clears throat> and that's our challenge as followers of Christ. To always stand with Christ. 
to always be willing to testify him, knowing, testify of him, knowing that he has been through everything, knowing that he has descended below all things. He knew exactly how Peter felt that night. He knew the remorse that he felt for denying his Savior. And with a glance at him, I'm sure it was a loving glance, Christ having just endured the pains of Gethsemane, certainly within that glance was great love, great desire for Peter to be better, to become the man that the Lord knew that he needed him to become and that he would become. Even though he had to endure some pain, some shame, and repentance before he got there. And that is, of course, the challenge for each of us, that we become better, relying upon Christ and upon his merits, that we live up to our promises, live up to our expectations, live up to the covenants that we made when we were baptized, and the covenants that we later make as we enter the temple and literally take upon ourselves the name of Christ. And we can do so with full confidence, knowing that no matter what we go through, no matter the challenges that we endure, Christ has been there. Christ endured them before we did. And that if we live up to Christ, if we let the Spirit lead us to him, we can be one with him and his greatness, his infinite capacity for overcoming the world will become our capacity, allowing ourselves to overcome ourselves, to become one with him and become one with the Father, all made possible through his great atonement, which culminated in the Garden of, of, the Garden of Gethsemane and that night 2,000 years ago. I pray that we will stand as, test, as witnesses of Christ in all that we do, having faith in that atonement, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.